Hello, Spilling Chai listeners. Welcome to episode five of season two, coming to you from Washington, D.C. Being a writer during a pandemic has made me think a lot about not just our stories, but who gets to tell them. Being a brown person in America, an immigrant, a person of color, means that narratives are often framed for you by, well, your brownness. But the work of our guest today has been instrumental in reminding people not only how important representation is, but how important it is that we ourselves get to choose and own how our stories are told. I am talking about author and New York Times writer, Sopan Deb. Throughout his decade-plus reporting of politics, culture, and sports, Deb has interviewed high-profile personalities such as Denzel Washington, Stephen Colbert, Bill Murray, and President Donald Trump. But his most challenging interviews are the ones he did with his mother and father during the writing of his memoir, Mistranslations, Meeting the Immigrant Parents Who Raised Me. The book tells a story about Deb's Hindu-Indian family of Bengali origin who moved to New Jersey when he was three years old. After high school, Deb went on to Boston University where he graduated with a degree in broadcast journalism. You have seen his work in the Boston Globe, NBC News, Al Jazeera, and CBS News. Deb also moonlights as a stand-up comedian, and he is our guest today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show, Sopan. So my first question is, you write in your memoir, uh, Mistranslations, Meeting the Immigrant Parents Who Raised Me, quote, your stage material highlighting your South Asian culture served as a mask to mask the insecurities born from your family history. You say you knew your parents, both Indian, separately immigrated to North America in the 1960s and 70s. They were brought together in a volatile, ultimately doomed, arranged marriage, raising a family in suburban New Jersey before your father returned to India alone. Tell me more about your family and what growing up was like. You know, growing up with them, the, the best analogy I can think of is if you, you know, if you have a college roommate that you're not very close with. You know, you guys occupy the same space, but you don't really, you don't know each other. You don't really talk. You don't spend time together. And so that was what growing up with my parents was like. So, you know, I, I really didn't know much about them until I started, you know, this journey of the book. I didn't know their birthdays. I didn't know where they were born. I didn't know how they met. I didn't, you know, we didn't eat dinners together. Not very often. They didn't know who my friends were. I didn't know who their friends were. I didn't know, I really didn't know much about them. We didn't spend much time together. So it, it, it was like living, growing up with a bunch of strangers who just happened to share your blood. That's a really great analogy. When you say that your stage material about your South Asian culture really master insecurities born from this family history, elaborate a little bit more on that for me. What do you mean by that? You know, I started doing stand-up I think around 2012, 2013, give or take. And I remember I, I did a lot of material about being brown. But it was a lot of kind of low-hanging fruit jokes about being, you know, about the brown experience. I remember one of the early jokes I told was something like, um, I can't wait for the first uh, Indian president because, you know, he or she is always going to be uh, randomly screen getting onto Air Force One or something like that. And I remember that I would get laughs from the crowd, but... I was like, wait a minute, your whole life you've run from your brown identity. You, have, you grew up in a mostly white town. You, know, you rejected Hinduism, you rejected, and, and you were upset about your parents' arranged marriage. All you wanted to do was be white. And here you are on stage talking about the brown experience as if this is something you've embraced. And I felt like a fraud, you know, telling those jokes. Yeah. So part of the reason for me going on this, um, you know, journey 
to find my parents is that I, I didn't want to feel like a fraud anymore. I wanted to live inside my own skin. And by the way, I, I should note, it wasn't a rational or, or correct reaction on my part. It was just, it was just, it just was. Yeah. Just, it, this is just what happened. So that, that's pretty much where that, where that stemmed from, right? Yeah. It's like using humor, like after 9-11, you know, as a Muslim in America, like you kind of make those jokes to deal with the racism. Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, it's a different, it's a little bit of a different burden in that I think when a lot of Muslims, you know, particularly comedians were making those jokes, that's a little bit more, I think, of a life and death scenario. Because if you think about the hate crimes that spiked after 9-11, right, you know, you, you kind of, there's such a weight on, on the shoulders. For me, it was specifically a, an outgrowth of my parents having such a terrible, toxic marriage, me having such a toxic relationship with them. And therefore, me just rejecting brownness in general. Whereas post 9-11, Muslims had to kind of, you know, they, they, they were essentially, there was such a difficult, and it still is to this day, right? I mean, but. Yeah, like a national security threat. We were concerned. Yes, absolutely. It, it, was, it was literally, the danger was higher, literally, you know? And so, so I don't want to compare my plight to that. I'll, I'll put it that way. No, of course not. No, you're being really good about that. But also you've worked with Dina Badalla on their, on their brown. <laughs> it's not, you don't, you weren't on their Arabs are coming. <laughs> no, I never did Arabs are coming. I've done their, the big brown show that yeah. they do, they've done um, for several years now. I've done it maybe, you know, uh, six, seven years now. Wow. Oh, I'm a big, big fan of Dean, who I consider a huge mentor to. And Maysoon has been, has been on the show. Oh, okay. Awesome. Yeah, she's awesome. So you were one of the first minorities covering the Trump campaign back in 2016. What was that experience like? You know, if you asked me that question four years ago, I would give you a different answer than the answer I'll give you now. First of all, I'm going to be totally honest with you. Four years ago seems like 40 years ago. If you think about how the news cycles have gone in the last four years. So I've actually blocked a good portion of that year and a half out because it was so exhausting. And it was just so, it was just, it was just overwhelming. And it's particularly overwhelming as one of the only brown people, you know, covering the campaign. Um, but what I remember of those times is that, you know, you know, I went to about a hundred, hundreds of rallies all over the country with Trump. I remember the rallies being mostly fulfilled with white people. I remember that every speech was different. I remember that Trump was a very much a showman. You know, he kind of knew, and for kind of not too different than a stand-up comedian. You know, he did crowd work and he'd, he'd, he'd know his audience, you know, and he, he'd, know, um, he'd know what he was doing, essentially. I remember just, just being horrified at points. For example, you know, I, you know, I had someone come up to me and ask me if I was a member of ISIS. I had someone come up to me and tell me to go back to Iraq where I came from. And, and those are very jarring experiences for me. I remember meeting people that went to every Trump rally that like followed his rallies around as if he was, as if he was the Grateful Dead, you know, like Grateful Dead fans are famous for going, you know, going with them on the road or whatever. And that was, you know, it was, it was unlike anything I had experienced and I will experience again, no matter what happens, because even if, look, whatever you can say, whatever you want to say about Trump, that first campaign was virtually unprecedented. There really hadn't been anything like that before in American history. And so, you know, it was, it was a remarkable experience to be on the front lines of that, but it was exhausting. And after the campaign, I had to take a break from politics. I don't blame you. I remember first hearing about you because you were, you were kicked out of a rally 
or they they did something to you. You kind of became the story. Uh, what was that? So no, so so I wasn't kicked out of a rally. What happened was, and this this kind of gets conflated sometimes. It was in March of 2016, and Trump was doing a big rally in Chicago. He ended the he postponed the rally at the last second because of the amount of protests. And while I was shooting the protests outside with my camera, Chicago police threw me to the ground and arrested me and charged me with resisting arrest. I didn't do anything wrong. At no point did I disobey a police officer. I didn't even make contact. I still don't know to this day why that happened. But basically what, what ended up saving me was uh, my camera continued to roll. And actually a Fox News camera also captured my arrest. And it clearly showed that I wasn't doing anything wrong. So, you know, essentially, look, you know, I'm a journalist. And, and, you know, you have, when that happens, you have a platform to be like, this is incredibly wrong. And they dropped the charges a couple of days later because they were in, completely in the wrong. Now, what I will say is what that experience opened me up to was, you know, when that happened to me, I was immediately able to go viral, right? You know, this network president released a statement. It's all these news outlets are writing about it and they're pressuring the police department to be like, explain themselves. So they dropped the charges, right? But the thing that gets me about that situation is that I wasn't doing anything wrong, even if I wasn't a journalist. It was a public street. I was just standing there. And so I think about all the people, particularly in the last five or six months, who have been you know, unjustly arrested, who didn't have the recourse that I did, you know, who didn't- You could have been killed. Yeah, well, CBS, you know, CBS hired a lawyer for me. You know, lawyers are expensive. You know, I'll tell you, if I recall correctly, the lawyer came down got me out of jail. And that was the last thing he did. He didn't have to do anything else. And that still cost, I think CBS, it cost them $2,000. Not a lot of people, some people don't have that kind of money. And so I think about all the people that are, you know, maybe forced to take plea deals that they don't, that are wrong. And it, it just opened me up to, I mean, I was always aware of just sometimes how unfair the justice system is, but this really, I was very fortunate that I had, I was a journalist at that moment. And I, I, I think about the people that aren't in those situations that don't get to have that privilege. Yeah. I mean, of course, we've seen in the past couple of months, especially with Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, I mean, you really don't have to be doing much to experience police brutality and just the police being in the wrong. You write, one of the central questions in your book asks if it's ever too late to pick up the pieces and offer forgiveness. What is your answer to that? I think that it depends on the relationship. You know, what I've always told people about mistranslations is that you know, this journey is not for everyone. You know, some relationships, it is healthy to get estranged. Estrangement is sometimes a healthy thing. You know, some people wound you in a way that will never be, you know, that is unforgivable. But if you are to go on a journey of reconciliation, if you are to do that, there are two. First of all, both sides have to want to do it. You can't force someone. And secondly, you have to be willing to look in the mirror. You have to be willing to say, okay, what did I contribute to this dynamic? Okay. What did I do here? You know, because, because sometimes there are things that you, know, you may not realize that you contributed. And I think we as humans often are very external facing. So this person annoyed me, this waiter brought out the wrong plate. This person didn't hold the door open for me. And we never stop to say, okay, what did I do here? You know? And I think empathy is a really, really underrated trait. And so empathy is really important. Looking in the mirror is really important. And you have to want to do it. You know, you can't force someone to reconcile. Now, I also think, I also think it's not an overnight process. Look, my parents and I, you know, are, is our relationship better than what it used to be? Yeah. 
It is. Is it reconciled per se? I, I don't think so. I don't know if it ever will be, but we are, you know, both sides are making the attempt and I think that's what matters. Yes. Yes. I love that. When I was reading about you and doing my research, you know, this came up in an article about you, quote, for the South Asian family, a culture of silence around mental illness meant that his mother wasn't there for Deb growing up, literally locking herself away within the family home for extended periods of time. I love that this issue comes up in your book. Desis and our culture of silence and shame to not discuss anything, especially around mental health. Do you think we're getting better about how we how we deal with these issues and talk about these kinds of issues? I don't know the answer to that. I think our I think I think my generation is. Yeah. I think it's a generational issue as much as it is a cultural issue. You know, I think people my age, for people my age, talking about mental health is a lot, a lot less stigmatized. But here's what I'll say. I think the big difference between my generation and the generation before me, so our parents' generation, is that, you know, my parents, when they immigrated here, they came here to survive, right? They, they had to get to the end of the day. They had to put food on the table. They were broke. So for them, they're just trying to get to the next day. They almost didn't have the room to think about their feelings, right? They didn't have the room to, to explore, you know, their own aspirations and their own, whether it's depression or highs and lows. And as a result, it's, you know, I, I don't think that my parents would have necessarily rejected therapy, you know, in the early days of their marriage and growing up. It's just that I don't even think it's something they consider to be an option. Yeah. It's just not something they even knew. They didn't even know to think about it. Yeah. And, and I think, so I think it's a generational thing as much as it is a, a, a cultural thing. Yeah, you're right. So journalist, comedian, author, which of these hats bring you the most joy? Oh, easily, easily the, the book. You know, after the book came out, every couple of days I receive a note from someone, sometimes, you know, across the, across the world, you know, mostly from here in the U.S. because that's where the book is available right now. And I'll have an announcement soon about, hopefully, about it being available abroad. But I get a note from someone, usually someone in the Brown community, that says, you know what? Thank you so much for writing your book. This spoke to me and you, it's not exactly my story, but there's so much of it that I can relate to. And that's really, really meaningful to me because think about this and you know this better than anybody, like how many Brown stories get to be told? Yeah, hardly ever. <laughs> and, and when it is, it's like, you know, if it's film and TV. It's told from a white person's point of view, right? Yeah, it was hey, Cal Penn, we need you to play a terrorist on 24. You know, like... Yeah, or a poo. Yeah, or a poo, oh. right? And, and so, so I think it was really meaningful to be able to put a story out there that puts the Brown story, you know, into nuance. And after Mistranslations came out, I actually spent the summer writing a novel that I just sent off to my agent about a Bengali family uh, in New Jersey. And all I could think to myself was, oh my gosh, I'm so enjoying being able to portray the Bengali experience. Yeah. The only Bengali story that I really saw growing up, and it was so, and I was just so enraptured by it, was uh, the namesake. And seeing Cal Penn in the namesake was such a, um, it, it resonated with me so much because I felt like he was telling my story. And I never realized how important that was to me. And I told Cal this actually in the course of the book. I told, I was like, this book would not exist without you doing what you have done. And so, I, you know, for me, the book has been the most meaningful experience professionally or personally, whatever, of my life. And, and I hope to do more of that going forward. Yeah, you know, you don't realize it 
until it's like we're so used to not not seeing ourselves represented and our stories not being told. You don't even realize how much you love it or need it until it's shown to you. Like Cal Penn was so amazing in namesake, even Chumpuleri, you know, all her works when they were, you know, Zadie Smith, when all these South Asian writers started kind of coming into the mainstream. Uh, but also recently, I mean, it was a couple years ago when Priyanka Chopra got the lead in Quantico, that was yes. so exciting for me. I was like, my daughters get to see this. Like, I just thought it was the coolest thing. And, you know, that show wasn't really necessarily about her brownness. So that made it even better because it's like we don't totally. have to, you know, be the terrorist or be the. <laughs> and what's funny is I think the work that Cal is most famous for is uh, Harold and Kumar. Yeah. And you don't realize it. I mean, people that I don't think people realize at the time, but that work is in particular groundbreaking because Cal Penn gets to be the lead in a film, a comedy that has nothing to do with his brownness. You know, that, that film had very little to do, like it wasn't about him being Indian. So that, that was groundbreaking in its, in its own way as well. Right. And so um, I, I think that it, it's really great to see more of these stories told. And when I was writing this, I was most stressed by how the Brown community was going to, receive the book. And the reason for that is because there's such little brown content out there in film, TV, literature, or whatever, comparatively to, you know, let's say white stories, you know, there, there's this burden that brown books, brown films, there's this burden that they have to be representative of everybody's experiences. And it's not, it's not realistic, right? Oh, the, you know, because my story is not the brown story. It's one brown story. We're not a monolith. Right. And so breaking news. <laughs> yeah. I'm, 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 I'm fortunate that, you know, most, most of the response has been very positive and, you know, I hope, I hope it reaches more people. It's fantastic. So last question, what are you working on now? What's making you want to spill the chai? Well, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, right after Mistranslations came out, I got such a reaction from it that I, you know, I wanted to do another, um, creative projects. So I decided to start writing a novel. I'd never write, written one before about a Bengali family dealing with grief in New Jersey. It's a novel set in the town I grew up in. And I just sent that off to my agent a couple of weeks ago. So I'm hoping to, um, you know, so we're in the edit, we're in the revision phase right now. And I'm really excited about that. I hope that that can progress. And, you know, I'm working on a couple of TV and film projects. I'm hoping, you know, we're working on, I'm working with a, a good friend of mine out in LA to get mistranslations turned into a um, TV show. And, you know, but those are, as, as you know, uh, you know better than anybody, this stuff, there's so much, so many uh, tripwires and whatnot. So who knows if it'll happen, but uh, that's what I'm excited about right now. Well, how exciting because are you also, I feel like it's coming in my career too, inshallah. I just want to be in that phase in your life where you're writing books and you're just like writing, right? Like, do you think you're done with politics and political journalism? Every year, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story, which is the morning of election day, 2016. I remember Trump did his last rally. It was in Grand Rapids, Michigan at about one in the morning. And then we're on the press plane heading back to New York. And I remember looking at the electoral map with a bunch of other reporters. I was like, okay, Hillary's going to win Texas. Hillary's going to win Arizona. This is going to be a landslide. And then, of course, that night, I was obviously totally wrong. And that was the last time I think I ever made a prediction about anything <laughs> going forward. And so I had no idea what's, what's and, and the pandemic also really changes things. Yes. Right? I mean, I mean, I'm very fortunate to be employed and healthy and, you know, at, at a place that does work that I'm proud to do work at. And so who knows? But I, I like to have the option. But we'll see. I mean, we'll, let's do this again and let's spill some chai in six months. It's a date. 
Sopan, it is a date. <laughs> Sopan, right? <laughs> I just want to call you Shopan so badly. That's the Bengali. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for taking the time to spill chai with me. I'm definitely going to have you back. I'm going to I'm going to hold you to that. Of course. Thank you so much. I will speak to you soon. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Although we may be experiencing the pandemic differently, One thing that is being highlighted for everyone is the journey we are on in this life and the people who join us on them. Which broken pieces of your story do you ache to put back together? And is it ever too late to offer forgiveness? Could there be a better time to find out than right now? If you enjoyed this episode of Spilling Chai, please subscribe, review, and rate us on your favorite streaming app. Don't forget to follow us on social at Spilling Chai Podcast. And of course, until next time, Let's keep brewing the chai.